Welcome to whatever number episode this is of Pulp Today. I am joined today by a very special guest, the lovely and talented Kelly Sue Milano. Say hello Hi. to the kids at home. Uh, Hi, Kelly kids at home. is our writer, writes uh, Hex 11, uh -huh. the comic book series, and is a lovely presence at all comic book conventions where you might run into her Aww. and her colleagues. And... Um, I wanted to invite her on the show, and she suggested Goosebumps, which I'm sure a lot of people go, Oh, no, it's not Goosebumps. It's not Goosebumps? It is not Goosebumps. It's the, um, it is part of the Fear Street Chillers, written by R.L. Stein, ah. same author as Goosebumps. But these were for, um, you know, teens. Mm -hmm. Goosebumps was for preteens. So this was teen- pulp horror right <laughs> no, that, and i, totally... I, I read all of these i read all of the fear street chillers and they were on sale at um the grocery store behind wow. my house so they had like a little you know a thing set up that had a whole bunch of his books and there were mm -hmm. new ones like every month um and i was just obsessed and i read them voraciously and how many are in this series, are in the Chillers? The Fear, oh gosh, I think there's got to be, the Fear Street Chillers, I think there might be over 35 titles. I mean, there's way more Goosebumps. Right. Goosebumps, I mean, those ran forever. Right. Um, and then there was, you know, it, within the Fear Street Chillers, there's a, the book that I'm going to talk about today, and that is actually the first of a trilogy for that title. Wow. So some of the titles have, you know, go on to two, three, I think maybe even four. Um, and they're just the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. R.L. Stein is, there were two things that uh, I wanted to look up today. Well, mm. One thing, and it led to the second thing. Mm. I missed the entire thing because um, Goosebumps premieres in 92. And yeah. I am way too old in 1992 yeah. to be the audience for that. It's yeah. sort of like the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon. I'm like, I'm 22 when that comes out. It's like, right. that ship has sailed a little bit for me by the time <laughs> that, that happened. Yeah. Um, but I get why the generation right behind me was totally obsessed with it. The other thing oh, yeah. that super surprised me when I researched this, I did hmm. not know that R.L. Stein was a man. Yeah. I assumed that after the fashion of so many female writers yeah. who use initials to hide the fact that they're a woman so they can get published, mm -hmm. R.L. Stein, actually a man. I don't know if he's hiding, yeah. hiding the fact that he's Ralph or whatever embarrassing first name he, he has is, around. And you know, interestingly, he's Robert Lawrence Stein. That seems really simple. I think maybe just R.L. Stein fits more yeah, easily sure. on the cover of a paperback. <laughs> sure. I mean, it fits more easily than David or Michael Avalone. That's for sure. Exactly. So, you know, and it sounds creepy, which is a, which is a bonus. Yeah, I guess that's, I guess Robert Stein is not a particularly mysterious uh, sounding name, but yeah, I have assumed the entire time that I've been aware of the existence of these books that R.L. Stein was a, a woman. That is hilarious. I love yeah. that. Just because wow. of that cliche of, yeah. You know, 
women hiding their their identity behind uh, initials. But why don't yeah. you read for us, and we will uh, we will discuss. Okay, I'm excited. All right, so the book I'm reading from is one of my favorites of many, and it's called Silent Night. <laughs> it's a Christmas horror story. Um, I guess I'll read from it and then we can talk about yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. This is from the prologue. All right. <clears throat> this is really the last straw, Miss Smith declared. She glared at Riva, then spun around on her men's wingtips and stormed down the aisle, heading toward the main floor office. Riva leaned against the counter and watched her until she disappeared in a crowd of customers. What's her problem anyway? She asked herself. My dad owns this store. He owns all of the Dalby stores. Why should I listen to a stupid sales clerk with shoulder pads bigger than her head? A scene across the aisle caught Riva's attention. A woman was leaning over the makeup counter while a five or six-year-old boy tugged at her skirt. Mom, 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 he kept repeating, an impatient plea. Then he tugged so hard, he tugged her skirt down to her knees. The woman calmly turned around, pulled up her skirt, and gently paddled the boy across the bottom. Kids are a riot, Riva thought, chuckling. Hey, miss, miss. Out of the corner of her eye, Riva saw a middle-aged man in a heavy brown tweed overcoat trying to get her attention. She carefully turned the other way, avoiding his eyes. Hey, miss, please, let someone else wait on him. Where was Lucy anyway? She was supposed to be back from break. The man finally wandered off. Riva took out her lipstick from the drawer, pulled off the top and twisted the tube. She turned the round countertop mirror so that she could see herself better, leaned toward it, puckered her full lips into a pout and began spreading the magenta lipstick on them. It took a second for the pain to register. Then she let out a horrified shriek and dropped the lipstick. Gasping in pain and surprise, she stared into the small mirror and saw blood pouring down her chin. Her lips throbbed with pain. She stood frozen in horror. There was so much blood. Frantically, she grabbed up tissues, mopping gently at her lips. I'm cut, I can't stop the bleeding. What has happened here? Pressing a wad of tissues against her mouth, she saw large drops of blood on the glass countertop. Breathing hard, she bent down and searched the floor for the lipstick tube. It had rolled under the counter. She snatched at it and brought it up to the light to examine it. Trying to hold the tube steady in her trembling hand, Riva saw at once what had cut her. A needle. It poked out from the center of the tube. I've used this lipstick before, Riva thought, feeling the warm blood still running down her chin and it was perfectly okay. Somebody put that needle in her lipstick, but who? Who would do such a vicious thing to her? Come on! That is a very effective opening. That is a very pulpy and effective opening. It seems very pedestrian and nothing important oh, yeah. is happening, and then buckets of blood. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I remember viscerally reading this book for the first time sure. and reading that prologue and being like, I still, I mean, I still think about it. It's kind of, it's why I chose this book. Mm -hmm. Sure. <laughs> I still think about it. And then when I was watching for anybody who's, you know, seen killing Eve, 
there is a, a moment in Killing Eve where, you know, Eve is dealing with a lipstick that has a razor blade in it. And I'm like, she took it from Silent Night. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, that is entirely possible. Uh, you know, I always say there are only so many gags in the world. And a lot of times, you know, we, we come up with them uh, independently of one another. But there are times, I mean, you know, the climax of uh, the TV pilot for the Rockford Files. Mm. is the opening scene of one of my dad's detective novels. <sighs> See, and we just rewatched it and just went, what are you going to do? <laughs> like, you know, yeah. it's too, the genie's out of the bottle. Can't do it now. You know, totally, totally. <laughs> yeah. I would be really, if I ever meet Phoebe Waller-Bridge, I'll ask any chance you were a fan of the Fear Street Chiller series, specifically Silent Night. <laughs> yeah. I think she yeah. might say yes. Yeah, Maybe. but like, but you know, it's a it, it it unless you unless you you meet her, you you will never know. It's uh, I'll never know. You know exactly. But, That's why I just decide. Sure, <laughs> I just and decide is, that it's true. This one is the first <laughs> novel in a trilogy. This is the first in a trilogy, yeah, mm -hmm. that follows this character, um, Reva Dalby, who's very sort of like she's Regina George from Mean Girls, far before that movie ever happened. Of course, um, she's got a little. She's got a little bit of an Audrey Horn-esque kind sure. of attitude. Um, and she, it's, it, it, I mean, it's such a perfect example, I think, of R.L. Stein's work because the main character is terrible. Mm -hmm. She steals people's boyfriends and then dumps them when she gets bored. She, she can't stand her cousin because her cousin and her cousin's family are poor. You know, her dad owns this chain of department stores that she works at, but she never actually does any work. Um, right. And what's amazing is that she doesn't actually learn anything. Right. <laughs> she doesn't really grow throughout the course of this book. And that was what R.L. Stein was wanting to do for kids at this time and teens, which was like, you know, there's so much, if you talk about, I don't know, fairy tales or children's literature, there's always this huge sense of morality and we need to walk away with a greater lesson and people have to grow and evolve. And he was like, yeah, no, nobody in my books is growing. Nobody's learning a larger lesson. Uh, this is just, these are stories that are for fun. And if right. there's one lesson that anybody can take away from my books, it's to run. <laughs> right. Well, and look down before you press something into your mouth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that's a good. Don't don't just pick up something and stick it on your mouth without going. Yeah. Someone's stick just a take a peek. Yeah. Yeah, especially yeah. if you're wearing, you know, lipstick and um, you're a terrible person. <laughs> right. Now, what, the man who's trying to get her attention, I assume he is. He becomes important later. Um. Or is that yes. just a random thing? The, well, the man who's getting her attention in the beginning is he doesn't become important later, but it, it is a little bit of a foreshadowing to what uh, sort of befalls her throughout the story. So she, you know, is moving through she's moving through her life being completely awful and um, ends up crossing this man who had had a crush on her, who she dumped very cruelly, mm -hmm. um, who then secretly gets a job at the department store, even though she's sort of the one who is hiring out her friends. And she's like, how did you get hired without me knowing about it? Kind of deal. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and he's the one who ends up, you know, kind of pulling all of these really mean pranks on her and um, eventually ends up uh, committing a murder that she discovers in the dark department store at night. And then he gets his comeuppance by getting electrocuted by the giant department store Christmas tree. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, in the interest of full disclosure, I worked on a movie called Silent Night, Deadly Night, Part 3. There you go. The third movie in the Killer Santa Claus. Uh, though by the time of the third movie, it's not Killer Santa Claus anymore. It's like the Killer Santa Claus's uh, kid who's got an exposed sure. brain in a jar. It's all very, very confusing. Of course. Yeah, but interesting yeah. That, you, that you said Audrey Horn because we made that mm -hmm. movie a minute before Twin Peaks came on the air. And believe mm. it or not, this sh this shitty low-budget movie had the same casting people as Twin Peaks. So Richard Stop. Boehmer played one of the villains in it, and Eric DeRay from Twin Peaks, the truck driver from Twin Peaks, yes. was, one was one of the teenagers in it. Incredible. And Laura, Laura Herring from uh, Mulholland Drive was in it. Yeah. Like wow. it was her first acting gig. I think she was just coming from being Miss Mexico. Oh my gosh. In the Miss Universe contest. So uh, now the obvious thing here Maybe. to mention and why it's really good that this was your choice, mm. this is a horror story about high school students. Uh-huh. Gee, okay. I wonder what effect that might've had on your life and career. <laughs> that your favorite film was a horror story about high school yeah. students. Oh my gosh. Uh, so much. Yeah. I, um, you know, I am the generation behind you. I'm like the tail end of Gen X. Yeah. Um, and when I was coming up as a small kid and coming into my preteen years, actually, maybe not so much once I was getting in, into preteen years, but a lot of the a lot of the children's programming and children's things that I watched as a small child were incredibly dark. Yeah. I, you know, I was watching um the last unicorn and the labyrinth and the dark crystal and uh rainbow bright which is actually a really yeah. dark kind of origin story um and so i was already kind of obsessed with uh scary things yeah um and once these came around i was like oh, thank god i'm so tired of reading babysitter's club and sweet valley high and all, right. Like, I just don't relate to this at all. And then right. I find teen horror, 89, 90, 91 at the grocery store. And it's like, I see this cover and I'm like, yes. And when is that? Guy. What year is that book from? This is from 91. Okay. Yeah. Um, and diving into these stories, this, the plot is so simple. They're such fast reads. Um, it's like scary saved by the bell. And <laughs> it really, I mean, I read them so voraciously and he's very descriptive. Um, and I just fell in love, not just with reading, but with writing. Mm -hmm. It's like, I want to tell stories like this that I can feel. They're very character driven. You know, it's not, this is not rocket science. I mean, R.L. Stein was putting out one book a month. So they're very formulaic and right. um, you can kind of see what's coming, but they're still surprising. It's um, yeah. 
And it taught me so much about what kind of a storyteller I wanted to be. And it informed so much more of the reading I did as a later teen and a young adult. I mean, I think around this time was actually when I started reading Stephen King, because I'm like, all right, I mean, I can get down with this, but I'm ready to take it to the next level, mm-hmm. <laughs> horror-wise. Um, and it just gave me a real love of the genre. And um, it felt good as a young person to not feel like I was being condescended to. Sure. Um, and I think that's what a lot of young people feel when they read these books that are just so steeped in morality and do the right thing and, you know, don't have sex and don't smoke cigarettes and, you know, don't stay away from booze and jazz or whatever, you know, <laughs> you're just like, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that because I read this book, <laughs> right. you know? Right. Um, and it just felt really, really great to to dive into these worlds where nobody is really worried about like, oh, their feelings or they're so soft. It's like, no, I can handle it. And I think that I took so much of that into, um, into my own work as a writer where I I probably, it probably influenced me even more than, than I might even realize because I don't, I have such a strong belief in not over explaining things to readers mm-hmm. and not um, filling in all the blanks sure. and not, you know, um, and letting there be mystery because that's what was always so delicious about reading these books yeah. um, is that you were constantly guessing, even though they were so formulated, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I could read a book and be like, okay, here's the part where there's going to be a gnarly cliffhanger. But the fact that I could still be surprised was something that I always really appreciated and still appreciate. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just read it again for the first time in I don't know how many years, uh, in like 20 minutes. And <laughs> it, <laughs> seriously, I mean, these chapters are like five pages. Um, and I was still like, wow, this stuff is so good. It's mm-hmm. just as, you know, inspiring as uh, the first time I read it, so. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. great when stuff holds up like that. And, you know, the children's mm-hmm. entertainment that you grew up with grew yeah. out of the stuff that I grew up with which was pitch black and yeah. hilariously <laughs> so. just yeah. hilariously shit. So my favorite joke about the whiz, it's a remake yeah. of the wizard of Oz. Yeah. Obviously the, you know, the, the, the gimmick is it's an all black cast, but I just love mm-hmm. the thinking that who should we get to direct this remake of a beloved children's classic? I know the director of dog day afternoon. <laughs> Perfect. Wait, what? Like, I get it. It's set in New York, and he really understands the vibe of New York. But right, not really for children. You know what this? You know what the Wizard of Oz misses? It misses that Serpico feeling. It's like no, I don't. Totally. Think, mm-hmm. I don't think that's really true. But yeah, the stuff that we that I grew up with was so incredibly dark. There's a story I yeah. love to tell because it's just it was a mystery in my life for years. Mm-hmm. The the first time I can remember consciously understanding human mortality that you age, you grow old, you die was watching an adaptation of a Christmas Carol animated animation of the Christmas Carol that was on TV when I was a little kid and I Mm -hmm. watched it and it blew my mind and it upset me and all of this. Yes. And the thing about Christmas specials is they're on every year. It was never on again. I saw it when I was (laughs) six or seven and it was never on again. 
And sometime oh. in the late 90s, early aughts, I was reading yeah. the Hollywood Reporter of Variety and they said, new to home video, the great animator Richard Williams' 1971 adaptation of A Christmas Carol, which only aired once because it was deemed too upsetting for small children. And I'm like, no fucking kidding. It was too, and it go, it's on uh, oh it's on YouTube, actually. It's it's produced by Chuck Jones. It's animated by Richard Williams, uh -huh. who's the animation director on- Oh, wow, um, cool. Who Framed Roger Rabbit. The voice of Scrooge right. is Alistair Sim, who did the best live action version of it. But it is the yeah. creepiest thing you've ever seen in your life. And it was aimed at children. And I love that oh it aired God. once. They got a million phone calls and went, <sighs> maybe we shouldn't be just showing this to small children. Nope. <laughs> it really and I need to toss it. The art really reflects like Victorian illustration. So yeah. it's, it's gorgeous to look so at. It's terrifying. That has, yeah. That has always fucking cracked me up. But oh, uh, you know, I wanted to plug Hex Eleven because that's mm. what I was referring to obliquely for the people who don't yes. know your work. Yes. Yeah. Kelly Sue writes a comic book series set in a high school about witches <laughs> and witchcraft and horror. So it's not like a giant leap from this to that. Uh, you know? Well, not not quite. We don't, it's Hex 11 is not set in a high school, but it does, mm -hmm. you know, it does, um, it does hone in on a young woman who right. has, you know, she's got an anger management problem. She's kind of like, I have something to prove and I'm going to go out there and prove it. And of course, because she's so hopped up on her own supply at the very beginning, she gets herself mixed up in some stuff that she just shouldn't have been involved in to begin with. And that launches mm -hmm. us into our now three volume story arc. Very nice. Um, yeah. This is a dystopian world where magic has been discovered as a new technology. Um, but because naturally magical people exist, the this presence of synthetic magic has caused a bit of a class war and so the naturally magical people are have been shoved out of society and they're living in this borough called the hex um you're probably already picking up on a few themes <laughs> that i could have made gotten from my uh i guess ray bradbury-esque um <laughs> bringing with literature and film and tv um and it's this very magical sci-fi fantasy series that follows a whole bunch of magical people sort of fighting for what's theirs and um, trying to stop the evil powers that be from asserting control and, uh, you know, dominating over their people and their world. Um, and there's themes of, you know, there's definitely lots of goth energy. My... <laughs> Uh, my co-creator and partner in crime and the illustrator and concept creator of Hex 11, Lisa K. Weber, um, is a goth to her bones, which is why her and I are such a fit. And so the art is very haunting and beautiful. And there are elements of the macabre and grotesque. And we um, we just have a blast making it. So without giving too much of the story away, sure, uh, highly recommend you just go out and pick it up. And where can people pick up <laughs> the beginning of where can people start people can well the first issue is available for free on our website hexcomics.com so you can go and read the very first issue and then decide oh man this is the coolest thing i've ever read aside <laughs> from anything written by david avalone <laughs> and um it Good is time. also available on comiXology which i guess is just kindle now 
Uh, yeah, then, just Amazon now, I think. It's just Amazon now. Yeah. Um, and you can also get um, hard copies on our website. You can order them there and we'll sign them up for you or come and see us at a show. We're going to be tabling say, at WonderCon. You, all, you so, will be tabling at WonderCon. We'll Great. Be, yep. We'll be at WonderCon. We'll be back at San Diego Comic-Con this year, God willing. Nice. Um, and then, yeah, our home show, LA Comic-Con, later on in the fall. Nice. So you can well, get I it will, all there. I will, of course, be looking forward to seeing you there. I think we met yeah. at a convention. I can't remember exactly which one. Might have been Long Beach. It could have been Long Beach. We did Long Beach a lot in the very beginning because we yeah. met you pretty early on in our table. Yeah, experience. I seem to remember. Yeah. We was were new to that the... first volume. Yeah. Uh, we were new to the scene. Yeah. If it was the first volume, then it probably was at, a, at WonderCon. Yeah. 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 Which is a great oh, wow. one. And I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to going back. Uh, yeah. I won't be tabling, but I will be wandering. And I think I have a couple of uh, panels lined up. Well, that's nice. Just yeah. attending is great. It is. I like tabling because it's not a bad thing to have someplace to sit down and put your bag. And it's not that's a bad true. thing to make a couple of bucks, but it is a bad thing to drag a bunch of boxes through Carter. So it, you know, listen, it's a trade-off. Loading into a Comic-Con is not for the faint of heart. No. It is a rite of passage. <laughs> yeah. It definitely is. Totally. Well, Kelly Sue, thank you so much for coming on and telling us about oh, this, was so great. this book. Uh, I have never read it. I'm definitely oh, not a teenager, but I will, I will pick it up and give it a read. And Listen, uh, you can read any of these. They're mm -hmm. all so good. <laughs> well, and that's the, you know, we, I, you know, on this show, I've made a, a, a pretty clear point about how uh, mutable the term pulp fiction is. And really pulp just refers to the quality of the paper. So anything yeah. that's ever been in a paperback book and anything that's ever been in a magazine is de facto pulp fiction. Mm -hmm. But this also has the, the thing of entertainment value and, Oh, yeah. being fast moving which you know people for a lot of reasons people associate that with uh mm -hmm. with pulp and pulpy material and oh, pulp totally. definitely has no uh your protagonist does not have to be a good person no. <laughs> that is not a not a no. not a precept of it but no. anyway thank you so much for joining me thank you for having me this was so fun and we will do it again sometime and we'll yeah. see you all on the next exciting episode of Pulp Today. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.